You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey guys, welcome to The Devoted Podcast. Well, I have been looking forward to this episode for months. You guys, you are in for such a treat today. Today, I'm joined by Elisa Childers. She is an author, apologist. She's got the Elisa Childers podcast, which I love and I totally recommend. She's a blogger. She's also a former recording artist, Zoe Girl, anyone. I absolutely was a fan back in the day, but I'm so encouraged by the ministry that Elisa has now. Her first book is another gospel, and it was just released back in October of this past year. And gals, I've read it twice. It's just excellent. So I'm just really excited for what the Lord is doing with Elisa and her ministry. So Elisa, thank you so much for being willing to come on the podcast. Oh, it is so great to be with you. And I'm really, really excited to get to be with you all in person in June. That's going to be such a blast. I cannot wait. And thanks for your kind words about the book, too. That was a labor of love. And it's nice to hear that it's blessed somebody and they've got something out of it. Man, that is so true. As Elisa just mentioned, guys, end of June, she is going to come out. I have been kind of slow about how much I've talked about this because we had Elisa scheduled to come out last June. And then lo and behold, we had 2020. And so it got pushed back. And then we thought we'd do September. And we thought, nope, that's not working either. So Lord willing, I think we've all learned to not say that anything is uh, for sure, for sure. But June, end of 20, uh, end of June, we're so excited to have you out. And gal, she's going to be here like on a Friday evening and then half a day Saturday. So it is going to be a lot of stuff. It's going to be a lot of meat. And she's going to talk about the progressive Christian movement and share some of her story, but then also really have a word for us gals, I think, in just some of the dangers that's out there. It's a really a gospel only so-called. But why don't we start there? If you want to just share with us a little bit of your story, maybe just give us a bit because I know you'll share that with us more later in June, but kind of give us an introduction maybe for anyone who has not got to hear from you yet. Well, thank you. Yeah. So this is a story that I could have never seen coming. If you would have told me to even 10 years ago that I would have an apologetics ministry or that I would even write a book, I would have told you you were crazy. There were just, that wasn't even on my radar or anything like that. But I had a pretty significant crisis of faith happen as an adult, as a result of being a part of a small study group at a local church here in Tennessee. Uh, This was after Zoe Girl. So we had come off the road and we were all married and starting to have kids. And so my husband and I started attending this church that we loved. And after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of this kind of smaller study group that he said would be a lot like seminary. If you go to this class, you'll come out on the other side uh, with a seminary level education, which sounded really cool to me because I loved the Bible my whole life. I loved Jesus my whole life. But what I didn't know at the time is that the class itself was really more of an introduction to deconstruction. And I know we'll probably talk a little more about that concept of deconstruction as we go on, but that's just essentially the process that a lot of people seem to be going through, Christians who grew up in the church who are slowly and methodically sort of picking apart and explaining away their beliefs. You know, we used to call this backsliding or falling away or losing your faith, but it's sort of got this sort of positive term now called deconstruction that people are promoting. So this class really was the pastor's deconstruction. A lot of people were in the process of deconstruction in this class. And so whereas I would have expected a Bible class to be, hey, we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible and then getting information that would support that, it was actually the opposite. The information that was presented in the class was, can we really trust the Bible? And actually, here's all the reasons we probably shouldn't trust it as the Word of God. And so it really threw me into a dark night of the soul, a crisis of faith that resulted 
in a search for truth. And so I discovered apologetics and God really used that to help rebuild my faith. And then so today I just essentially my ministry is hopefully to help people who might be doubting their faith or wondering if there's answers to some of these claims that they hear and just to help them walk through that because I felt like I didn't really have that when I was going through it because the claims were coming from a church, which was very unusual. You would expect that from maybe a university or something like that. But a lot of the claims are the same, interestingly. And this church went on to become a progressive Christian church. And so that's why I focus on that movement so much, because I think it's one of the biggest threats to the gospel right now. That is so interesting. And one of the things that you talked about in your book was when you were talking about the different ways in which progressive Christianity sort of exhibits itself. Because in my non-educated terms, I see that there's sort of this progressive movement that's sort of the brazen folks of like boldly like shunning you for your historic view of the Bible and your historic Orthodox faith. And it can kind of be even a little bit demeaning to you, like you're less enlightened or something. And so there's some that are very vocal in that. But then there's this also this other that I think kind of keyed in on where that church is a little more seductive. It can be a little more subtle and maybe the language is even initially a little softer. And I see this one as super dangerous for our kids, students, college kids, but honestly, even adults. But there's nothing new under the sun, too, as you bring up in that chapter that was so interesting. So I wonder, how do you see the different almost types of progressive Christian churches or or do they kind of just overlap? Are they a little bit more the same? I got to tell you, I've never been asked this question, but I'm so fascinated by it because it's a wonderful question and it's an important question. And there really are sort of different factions within progressive Christianity, like you mentioned, the more brazen kind and then the more confused kind. And then there's kind of this more scholarly kind and then this more sort of relativistic hippy dippy kind. And, you know, if we're fair, we have sort of factions like that in the evangelical church, too. So that's not I don't say that to dunk on anyone, but you definitely do have these different types of uh, people that all call themselves progressive Christians that are sort of under that same umbrella. So how I would parse it out is that I would say you've got your mainline Protestant denominations. So these are the historically liberal. When I say historically, they're not going to go all the way back to early Christianity, but, you know, around the 1800s, even 1700s, 1800s, with the rise of Unitarianism in the United States, with the German higher critical scholarship that was coming out of Germany in the late 1800s, kind of the rise of theological liberalism that swallowed up so many of our churches around the turn of the century there. And then, of course, the mainline Protestant denominations flowing out of that. And there's sort of that stream. And a lot of progressive Christians do go to mainline Protestant churches. But then you have this sort of other phenomenon happening, which is what happened in the church that I was in, where you have evangelical churches who are sort of slowly being swallowed up by the theological liberalism we see in those mainline Protestant denominations. But it's very subtle and there's a lot of turn of language where they'll use a lot of the same words. And it's very deceptive in that sense, because this church we were going to was marketed as a non-denominational evangelical church. They had a pretty good doctrinal statement. You felt safe. The pastor was using a lot of scripture, but there was all this other stuff going on sort of behind the scenes. And so we see that happening in a lot of churches where they're moving toward progressive Christianity and eventually they will rebrand. I've seen this happen in two or three different churches. And so that would be kind of another 
faction. Then there's this kind of other thing emerging that I'm actually seeing emerge more and more, even since I've written my book, I've seen the movement sort of morph into this, where I mentioned like the relativistic hippy-dippy thing, where you see a lot of new age sort of elements of a lot of stuff you read in the old new age books from the 60s and 70s, sort of marrying that with that theological liberalism. So you sort of have postmodernism and that theological liberalism coming together. And a lot of times they don't even go to church. It's sort of like, you know, the woods are my church or the when I go on a hike, that's church or something. It's very, very non-building focused, I guess you could say. There are definitely different ways that it manifests, some more intellectual, some a lot less intellectual. But there are some, and I go into this in the book a little bit, there are tenets though that unite them. And those seem to be ones that all of those factions are going to be pretty united on. So of those tenets, because I've kind of wondered as you observe this, what is sometimes the maybe the first domino to fall a little bit as it seems as, that they start going into this? Is there a, a domino that falls? Is there one that's most common? This is going to be anecdotal. This is just my opinion, and I could be wrong, but it sure seems like the first domino is biblical sexuality. That seems to be the first domino that falls. If you see a church that's starting to hedge on that, we sometimes tend to focus so much on the homosexuality issue, but you see a lot of churches really hedging on premarital sex. Maybe we don't need to tell people that they need to wait, or maybe it's not that big of a deal if they know they're going to get married. So there seems to be sort of this across the board, this loosening of the restraints that God put around sexuality. And so I think that especially with LGBTQ inclusion and affirmation, that's going to be a huge first domino to fall. And I've noticed, in fact, I've actually said in public to people when they say, well, you can't criticize someone just for changing their mind on that one thing. And of course, I would take issue with that. But even let's say I'll grant that premise and let's say that's true. Show me one person who has changed their mind on that one issue and didn't change their mind on all these others. And that's not a slippery slope argument. That's actually saying this is the trajectory that happens when we see that happens. I'd say that's probably the first one, at least, if not the main one. And it probably, as I observe it, sort of goes right into maybe the bigger issue that is there is the authoritative value of Scripture itself. Are you going to view the Bible as inerrant and our standard or do we decide what the Bible is and what it's not? Actually, I might be debate if that's the main one, because you're right. Actually, somebody's views of sexuality are going to flow out of what they think the Bible is, even before they worry about what it says. So, yeah, the Bible is going to be a big one. And those two probably work together. So, yeah, it could be either one of those. If somebody starts hearing in your pulpit, your pastor saying things like, well, the Bible isn't really the word of God. It contains parts of it. You might find the word of God or God might use it to make his word come alive to you. But a big one you'll here is, well, Jesus is the word, not the Bible. So we need to look to Jesus, the living word, and not hold the Bible in such high esteem because Jesus is the word. And so they'll actually use that argument to say the Bible is not the word of God, which is a very interesting twist. It's tricky. I've got two kids that are high school age. And so I feel sometimes these messages where it sounds good, even some of the progressive authors that you read, their writing is beautiful. And the way in which they present the argument even about the Bible. I remember listening, actually, and I didn't make it through the whole thing, but I listened partly to Rachel Held Evans' book that she did. And she's just very prosaic and very a great storyteller, really, about the Bible. She's so persuasive. She's a really a breathtaking writer. We have to acknowledge that. Her storytelling, her knowledge even of the context of the Bible and the stories that are in there, I think that's why she's so persuasive. But continue. 
No, but it's just that way in which it comes off so subtly and so sweetly, I guess. And I think particularly, I suppose this could be for guys as well, but my audience is gals. And I just feel like we want to hear that message. We want to hear that gentler, kinder way that, yeah, the Bible is actually, it didn't mean it like this in the Old Testament. And we should focus on how Jesus was in the New Testament, which even that I don't think is a consistent argument, but it is falls into that subtle category that we just continue to observe. But that's how the enemy works. You kind of got to call it out. He is an angel of light and he desires to be that light and that sweetness and but it's lies. It is lies. And this is very interesting. You'd bring up those words, lies and sweetness and angel of light and all of that, because one thing I've just been thinking about lately, and I hope it's okay to do this example here, but I don't know if anybody remembers the Twilight books. This is not an endorsement of the Twilight books. Like, don't go out and read them. You don't need to read them. But there was back when I read those books for research or something back in the day, and then, or at least I told myself it was for research and then <laughs> had to read every word after that. But there was this, just a quick example to support what you're saying, which I think is a really powerful example. You have the vampires in the Twilight movie. Each vampire has like a special power. So Edward can read minds and Alice can see the future. So there's different powers that they have. But some of the more evil vampires have powers where they can incapacitate you with pain or something like that. So Bella, when she becomes a vampire, spoiler alert (laughs) at the end there, her power is to be able to shield people from other people's powers. And so there's this other guy who has the power of, now this is where the analogy is so apt, is he can deploy this sort of uh, fog like mist. And the mist slowly creeps up on you and starts incapacitating your senses. So you kind of just, you get numb to what you smell. You can't really smell. You can't really hear. You can't really see. And so actually he uses this so that they can kill you without you even realizing what's happening. And so what's really interesting is that Bella in this end scene, she shields her family and then this guy releases the mist. And she says, when the mist hit my shield, it had a sweet and cloying flavor kind of reminded me of like Novocaine on my tongue. And I thought, wow, sweet and cloying. That's what those lies are like. They numb you, they incapacitate you, and you don't even realize you're getting taken down because... It's just so sweet and nice and it sounds good and it makes you feel good and it numbs you too. It's like, oh, I don't have to think about heaven and hell anymore. That tastes sweet on my tongue. It's kind of like how those lies work, I think. It is such a good analogy. Maybe the little more gory one is the frog in the boiling pot. He doesn't know to jump out. And I've actually even heard that from friends that were maybe not in a completely progressive church, but maybe in a church that just wasn't really teaching the Bible and they didn't even know. Like there's just not an awareness until perhaps they've gone into a church where the Bible is really being solidly taught. And I had one friend say to me that her husband came home and said, I didn't know I was starving. And I do feel that there is, we talked a little bit offline about how there really is a hunger for the real meat of scripture. And not the fluff. There was a line in your book where you said, we can't allow truth to be sacrificed on the altar of our feelings. And man, I talk about this so much on the podcast and in different outlets that I've had just because as women, we're feelers, right? That is a God-given capacity that we have. And we shouldn't run away from that. However, the guardrails of keeping the truth in the forefront 
I think a lot of people don't like to talk about this these days, but I think the fact, and I think it's a fact as well, that, and of course, there's always going to be exceptions, but women are generally more nurturing. We're by nature mothers. We are geared toward nurturing one human at a time. And so we're going to focus more on the individual. And that, like you said, is not something we should run from. That's actually a strength. But with every strength, there's going to be sort of a opposite weakness. And I think that we see this play out in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the Bible says that Eve Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't even deceived. Adam did it knowingly. and But Eve was tricked. She was deceived. Now, does that mean Eve's a dope and a moron? Well, no. But we're made differently. We're geared with different sort of capacities. And I think that the fact that women are more nurturing and tend to, to be more in touch with our emotions is a strength, but it also can make us vulnerable, I think more vulnerable to certain types of deceptions. And I don't think it sets women power back to admit that. In fact, I think if we're just saying, look, we want to recognize this about our ourselves. And of course, like I said, there's always exceptions. There's women who think more like men in certain ways. But generally speaking, I think that's the way God made us. And that's something we should embrace. But also we should be aware of the weakness that might accompany that. And I think sometimes people do, uh, gals can get defensive at that. They think that, oh man, if you're attacking me for this, like that I have to defend that, or you're saying women are stupid or whatever. And that's not what we're saying. But it is equally ignorant to not acknowledge that you have a weakness, that you have an open door. Right. And I think the only reason, just I'll say this about myself, even in the past, where I know that when I was younger, I might have had sort of an attitude towards men or something like this. But I think the only reason that I would have gotten defensive maybe in the past at that idea is because I had inadvertently made men the standard of good. So whatever men are is what I have to live up to or or be. But imagine if that was flipped and all the men were like, well, hey, women are way more in touch with their emotions. Like, what's wrong with us? And, you know, making women the standard of good. Well, that's God doesn't want us to do either one of those things. We're actually, that's why men and women need each other because we're complementary in that way. It's, we have these different, unique roles, equal value and worth, but different roles, different talents and strengths. And I think that our whole culture has just gotten all of that stuff out of balance. And then of course, of course we see extreme ramifications of that as well as more minor ones, but boy, that's just the problem of the fall, isn't it? The curse, there's always going to be that tension there. I wonder, because you made a statement in the book, you talked about having a more intellectual faith. And again, it's kind of coming off of the feeling piece that we have. We want to have, we do talk about your relationship with the Lord being deeply personal, and it should be. But also equalizing that or combating that, I suppose, a little bit with this intellectual faith, because I do wonder about our people that are in churches and maybe they don't know (laughs) where they don't know they're starving yet. They don't know some of the things that are kind of deceptively been creeping in. What kinds of things would you recommend to gals to just start bolstering that intellectual faith, to have that good counterpart to that personal side? Yes. And this is actually such an important thing, especially for women, for us to talk about, because what a lot of people don't realize is in the Bible, the words that the Bible uses to describe our hearts, our feelings, our minds, that's all considered the same thing in the Greek. There's the material part of you, which is your body, your fingernails, your hair, all the parts of you that are made of matter. And then there's the immaterial part of you. And that's going to be your emotions, your mind, your intellect, all of those things are all together. And I think what tends to happen sometimes with women is we separate those out too much and we say, well, my heart and my head are at odds with each other. When in reality, and biblically speaking, those are supposed to be unified. That's sort of the immaterial part of you. God doesn't actually see those things as being different parts of who you are. And so I think that for women, it can be really important for us to make sure that we're not out of balance there, that we haven't 
neglected the intellect at the expense of of our emotions because really those things should be in unity because they're kind of the same thing, biblically speaking. And so to sort of get into the intellect more, I think, to help inform, because really our emotions should be informed by truth. Like if we have an emotion that's not in line with truth, we would all agree we want to change that emotion or fix that. We do this with our kids all the time. When your kid has a tantrum or meltdown over not getting that extra cookie, we all recognize, well, that's not an appropriate emotional response to truth, right? So we want to teach our kids to get their emotions in line with truth, which is why the intellect is so important and truth is so important because really our emotions should be informed by truth. And we can only do that if we know truth intellectually. We have to know it. And so some places to start, I think there's a great book by Greg Kokel called The Story of Reality. And it's basically, I call it a systematic theology told through story. And it's not a big book, but it's sort of the whole narrative arc of good theology. It's called The Story of Reality. I mean, if you're into it, man, get Wayne Grudem's systematic theology on audio book. Just listen to it while you're washing dishes. It's a really accessible systematic theology. And at the end of the day, you might have some quibbles with how he interprets this passage or that, but it's a great place to start. It's going to give you good, solid information. Also, just read reading an apologetics book, reading I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist or Cold Case Christianity or something like that, just to give you that sort of intellectual backing to like, I know what I believe, but there's actually really good reasons and it's fun, really fun evidential reasons to know that this stuff is true. So that might be some places to start. Good podcasts, you know, you can listen to the SDR podcast. I have a podcast. There's lots of great apologetics podcasts to listen to as well. Yeah, because I do feel like there are a lot of resources now as far as being able to up that piece. And I often get asked, though, because a lot of times folks want to uh, check out all these other sources. And boy, I struggle with that. I have really appreciated that you have read some books that I just don't want to read, if I'm real honest. (laughs) I just don't want to read it because there is a danger a little bit of gals maybe immersing themselves in so much of what's going on. And if you don't have that intellectual, really understanding good doctrine from the Bible, Bible, you can be persuaded by some of those things. Or if you're on my side of things, sometimes I just get so disillusioned. I'm like, ah, how can you say that? How? And it's sad. But I struggle with striking that balance because we always talk about often at our church and on the podcast, we want to be in the real thing as much as we can. I mean, I just keep pointing gals to the word, the word, the word as much as you can, because you will spot those counterfeits a mile away if you're really in the word. So what would you recommend is kind of that balance? Because I don't know if you feel that, but I have felt like there is just so much out there and you want to balance it with being in the real thing. Okay, so what you just said is perfect because that is definitely, if you're not in the Word every day, don't read all those other books I just told you about. Start there. And here's the thing I've even given myself grace for. I really tried to do the whole Bible in a year thing. I've never done the Bible in a year, by the way. I read the Bible through a couple, two or three times, but I've never successfully started in January and ended on December 31st reading the whole Bible. So there you go. I do the plan, but it never happens in a calendar year, right? Never happens. And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves. But two weeks ago, I realized I'm I'm like 100 days behind because I just I'm reading a little bit every day. But then I thought, why am I pressuring myself to do this so quickly? So I was like, you know what? I'm going to digest what I'm reading. I'm not. And if I make five verses and I have to read it 10 times, then I'll do that. If I'm really flowing and I want to read the whole reading for the day, I'll do that. But I have given myself permission to make sure that whatever I do read, I digest and read with quality. And 
so I've slowed way down, but I would say definitely start, try a chronological plan where you're reading through the Bible and then get a podcast like the Bible Recap or maybe the Bible Recap book that can help explain to you what you just read because sometimes it can be confusing. There's King Hezekiah and then you got this guy and the prophet and that's going on and what does this all have to do with anything? And I think I really like the Bible Recap podcast for that. It's just like five to eight minutes of like, okay, what the heck did I just read? Here's what's going on. And so I think that's a really helpful resource. But yeah, like you said, the word is first because you're right. If you are in the word, then you will spot the counterfeits. You don't even have to know what they're called because you're going to be like, well, that's not what I read in the gospels. In fact, a great example of explaining this is I was reading through a Jen Hatmaker book for a review that I was going to be doing. And I asked a good friend of mine if she would read it with me so that we could bounce ideas off of each other because I probably wasn't going to like the book very much, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't being unfair. And what was really interesting is we were out walking one day and she said, you know, what's so interesting. I'm doing my Bible reading and I'm reading through the gospels right now. That's just where I am in the Bible. And as I read the Jen Hatmaker book and then I read the gospels like back to back, it's absolutely stunning how different the Jesuses are. So the Jesus that she talks about in her book and the Jesus that I read about in the gospels, it's like two completely different people. And I thought that was such a stunning observation because that's really how you know the counterfeit is when you know the real thing. And so she was spending so much time with the real Jesus of scripture that the other Jesus was easy to spot as a counterfeit. That is such a great point. And that actually brings me into what my next question was, too, on this, because I call it the DIY Jesus. Sometimes we sort of make this Jesus into what we think Jesus should look like, which actually ends up just being idol of me. It's what my small brain has decided that Jesus should be, which how stunning is that, that we can actually think that about the creator of the universe? But we do. But that's where sometimes I think progressive Christianity is so interesting in the parallels because, and and not the disparities, honestly, it's that as well. But the parallels in that, I've read things where they say how grieved they are about the division and the evangelical church or the fact that historic Christianity, that we're just not embracing who Jesus really is. Well, we would say that, right? We would say, oh, yeah, we need to embrace who Jesus of the Bible really is. They kind of say the same thing. And yet, obviously, we're talking about something different there. I don't know how to make sense of that a little bit. Is there anything that you would say about some of the parallels that we see and how we sort that out? Or do we? Well, I think that the point I try to make when I'm doing an overview of progressive Christianity is sort of answering that question. It's like, okay, here's who they're saying Jesus is. Here's what I was taught Jesus is or was. So how do we decide between the two who is the real Jesus? Like, will the real Jesus please stand up? You know, kind of thing. And I think that the question is, is that as Christians, as Jesus followers, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a Jesus follower, then you're a Opinions on things should line up with what Jesus' opinion on those things are. I think that's fair. I think that if you're going to use the word Christian, then your ideas should line up with Jesus' ideas. Now, where do we get our information about Jesus? And then this is where you're going to see some disparity. Because in the progressive church, like I said before, well, Jesus is the living word, and therefore the Bible is less value authoritatively or something like that. But you might find some progressive Christians to say, hey, well, I think what we read in the Gospels is what Jesus would say. Of course, then they're going to also follow the Jesus Seminar and some of these liberal scholars that try to take a lot of those words away and say, well, Jesus 
didn't really say that. I think each person just has to come to it on their own. Am I going to let the Gospels tell me who Jesus is? Well, it's really the whole Bible, but as far as the historical Jesus, am I going to go to the Gospels for that information or am I just going to go to some mystical source inside of my own soul? And you have every right to do that. But I don't think someone should call themselves a Jesus follower if they're not going to agree with the words Jesus said, at least in the Gospels. And as I point out in this talk I do sometimes, the views of sexuality disagree with Jesus on sexuality. Progressive Christians disagree with Jesus on what the Bible is. You know, this is swinging back around to the whole living word versus word of God thing. Well, I agree. Jesus is the living word. He is called the word of God. So what did he say about the scriptures? Well, he called them the word of God over and over and over again. So the living word thought the scriptures were the word of God. So I don't see why I should come to a different conclusion than that. It certainly was not a contradiction to Jesus to be the living word and call the scriptures the word of God. So he didn't see it a problem there. So as a Jesus follower, I'm not going to make a problem out of that. You know what I'm saying? And so like sexuality, the word of God, what he accomplished on the cross, they disagree with Jesus about what he accomplished on the cross. They disagree with him about the existence of hell. And so at some point, you just have to be intellectually honest and say, look, I either agree with Jesus or I don't. And I have every right to disagree, but I don't think we should call ourselves Jesus followers if we disagree with Jesus. And so that's kind of the point I make. And so essentially what I'm taking the long road to get around to is that how we tell the difference is you got to choose a source of authority. And if you're going to choose yourself, there's a really good chance, kind of like you mentioned, you're just going to create a God in your own image. But if you're going to use an authoritative source, the Bible, then you're going to have to lay down some of your own thoughts and ideas about things. Like you might think you do things differently, but you don't have all the information. God does. And so at some point you got to trust what he says. And so I think it's the source of authority would be the biggest difference. That's just such a landmine in our culture, authority. We kind of buck at it in every possible way that we can. And even really sadly, the way kids are even instructed in schools sometimes, and I'm meaning very generally speaking, but is to challenge authority. And we're taught to a challenge authority on kind of every level. So it's a big job for us moms or anybody, whoever it is you're teaching, that to be letting them know that Guys, it's countercultural what we're doing. But at the same time, I think the early church would have probably been pretty countercultural as well. Yes, yes, for sure. So I'm wondering also, because we also see a lot of overlap with the social justice movement and progressive Christianity. How do you observe those two things kind of being married together or are they? Well, oh, they are. Yes, they definitely are. And this is, again, like you mentioned, there's nothing new under the sun. I mentioned earlier the rise of Unitarianism, the rise of theological liberalism in Germany in the 1800s. That became their gospel as well. It was called the social gospel back then. And now we've added this phrase social justice now. If you think about it like this, if they're going to deny that men have inherent sin, if they're going to deny that that sin separates man from God, which they do deny these things, they deny the atonement of Jesus on the cross. They deny the final judgment of the existence of a place called hell. If you're going to deny all of those things, and yet you still want to call yourself a Christian or you want to still unite around something, you have to have something to unite around. And so in the progressive church, this becomes social justice and a lot of the periphery sort of topics that are all encompassed in that, like LGBTQ and affirmation is going to be under the umbrella of social justice. And by the way, when progressives use the phrase social justice, they don't mean caring necessarily just caring for the poor or 
or doing a homeless ministry or giving your money to rebuild areas that have been torn down or something like that. That's not good enough. The social justice they're talking about is more in line with what the secular culture is going to define it as, which is the tearing down of systems of oppression. And so this is why our whole world's been on fire for the last year and a half, is we see people taking to the streets to not just like right wrongs. Every Christian wants to right what's been done wrong. That's part of just God's justice is to make right what is wrong. That's not what they want. That's They'll never be satisfied with that. The, the point of the secular social justice narrative is not unity. The point is to tear down systems and replace them. And so progressive church gets totally on board with this and this becomes their gospel. So obviously it's not a grace-based gospel. It's a works-based gospel. You see this in their doctrinal statements. It's something that's very much not just married, but it sort of is their actual gospel, I would say. That's interesting. I've actually never thought about it that way. But we as historic evangelical Christians rally around the authoritative work of the Bible and that being our standard. And we have common ground in that we believe that. And when you take that away for the progressives, then what is that thing that brings them together? What is the thing that they rally around? And that's exactly right. You do see that where those are the things that they can unify around. That's the thing about the term social justice. It's such a lightning rod term because it's one of those things that can mean so many different things to so many people. Like two years ago, I would have said, yes, we should all be doing social justice. Of course. That's what I grew up doing. My parents worked in the homeless ministries. They, My mom ministered to prostitutes. I watched this happen all the time. But we have to understand that that is not what the world means by social justice, and it's not what the progressive church means by social justice. I really kind of am at the point now where I don't think we can save the term social justice. I think we need to recognize how it's defined by most of the world and say, no, social justice is not biblical. Biblical justice is like comparing social justice with biblical justice is probably more the right way to go. Yeah, it is interesting how we certainly need to stop and define those terms. And I honestly, that's just where the conversation has to start almost all the time, because I feel like a lot of times who I am exposed to via my kids or whoever is somebody that probably doesn't even know what is really being said by using the term social justice. And I've just been my kids are probably tired of hearing me say it and beating this drum. But define your terms, guys. You got to know what do they mean by the words that they're using? And they might be surprised to find out they actually probably don't know. But then I think you get into that boiling pot scenario. You have the fog creeping in where they don't really know the language that they're necessarily buying into until, man, they're way down the road on this. Yes. And it's a, such a slow and subtle shift to That's the thing I try to help people understand is because people say, well, it seems like my whole church is being taken over by this, but it's too late when you wait until the ship has drifted five miles off the shore. You have to make subtle changes as the subtle messages creep in and you have to confront any kind of false ideas that are coming into the church because it just comes in slowly. It's not like progressive Christians just come into your church and announce, hey, we're progressive Christians and we're going to change what you think about everything. It's just very slow and it's very subtle and people don't want to be judgmental. They don't want to be that person that causes a problem or has to mention something or say, hey, wait, I don't think that's actually biblical. But we actually have to do that as Christians. If you read the New Testament, this is a fun thing to do one time. Read the whole New Testament looking for all the verses that talk about false teachers, false doctrine, and what to do. It's 
all over. It's a major theme in the New Testament. It's not something that gets addressed here and there. It's a major theme is the protection of the real gospel. And I think we can't be shy as Christians to call things out. We can always do that lovingly and respectfully, but we have to do it, even though we're kind of in a culture right now where we don't want to do that because we're sort of pressured to say, well, that's bigoted or that's mean-spirited or small-minded or something like that. But that's what Christians have had to do for 2,000 years. Well, about to wrap, but before we do, I wanted to just key in on one last thing that was in your book. And I'm not trying to spoil this because, guys, if you've not read Elisa's book, Another Gospel, you need to read it. But she gives a really neat analogy with Legos. And because maybe you are listening and maybe you've kind of either been in a progressive church a little bit and maybe some of this might be new information and you're going, wait, what am I into? But I liked the encouragement of that analogy a little bit. And I would bet even if somebody's not in a progressive church, maybe they're in a great Bible teacher church, we allow so many things from culture and so many narratives to seep in the you are enough thing. We There's all kinds of lies that are seeping in. But I liked that analogy of the Lego to sort of like figure out where is the piece that needs fixed. So I don't know if you would just expand on that just a little bit. I thought of this because I love doing Lego sets with my kids. There was this one particular Lego set I did with my daughter. It was this elf dragon and it was really complicated and it was probably even higher level than she was ready for. But we sat down and we got that manual out and we put all the pieces together. So she was so proud of it. So we put it up on her dresser and she went to school. She comes home and it had fallen off of the dresser, but it was just shattered more than you would expect. So we still don't know what happened, but we had a choice to make, right? So at that point, you're like, okay, do we just break it apart and put it in the bin of, we call it the Lego bin of doom, just all the spare pieces that are from sets from times past? Or do we actually go back and get the manual out? And you sometimes you have to go back really far to find out where you need to start, a good starting place. So we decided because we had worked so hard on it, we were going to go back and rebuild it. So we had to go back pretty far. And we realized going back that we had a couple of the pieces, those inner core foundational pieces, we had those in wrong. And that's what made the whole structure so vulnerable to being shattered when it fell. I think that if we would have had those pieces incorrectly, it could have fallen and it might have, you know, maybe like a piece of the tail might have come off or something, but we could have just put it back on and it would have been fine. But I think it was so vulnerable because we had made an early mistake in that core foundation of the structure. And so I started to think about Christianity that way. And it's like, of course, Christians disagree on a lot of things. There are certainly secondary issues that we have always kind of argued about is why we have so many denominations. But I think that if we have those core pieces of the gospel incorrectly, then even if we get some outside pieces on wrong, or even we choose something decoratively to be different on the outside of the structure, the structure itself is going to stand when storms of life come. So really what those core pieces are, what we would call essential doctrines. And so many people define these in so many different ways. In fact, when I was researching for a chapter of my book on the essentials of the gospel, I googled what are the essentials of Christianity. And the first like seven websites that came up all had different lists. They had different doctrines on their lists and they had a different amount of what the essentials are and all that stuff. And I was like, man, I really want to get to the bottom of what I would actually say are the essentials. So the way I define essentials are beliefs that will directly affect your salvation. So if it's something that we can argue about in heaven, 
It's not that it's not important, but it's not going to be essential. And so I went about it more that way. And then I discovered that most Christians are generally on the same page about what that is. There might be one or two that people have quibbles over, but generally speaking, those doctrines, those beliefs, those truths that will directly affect salvation are the ones we need to guard the most because those are those inner building blocks of our faith. I just think that's such a great analogy and something to keep in mind that those, you got to know those pieces. You really need to know what those essentials are and be connected to your local church and find out what that church really believes on those issues, because otherwise you are going to find structurally you're going to have issues you know, a tail's going to fall off or whatever it ends up looking like. But if you have that core stuff, but I think it's interesting and it goes with the piece that we talked about earlier about having that intellectual faith of really understanding what we believe about these things. But in the process, we have to get our hands dirty a little bit and be willing to do some work in the scripture. I Proverbs 2 is probably one of my favorites when it talks about all the ways in which to search for wisdom and all of those things. But I tell the gals that you're probably going to have to get your shovel out and you're going to have to get dirt underneath your nails to really handle the word and not just check it off on a reading plan, but to really digest, like you were saying, about what it is you're reading and what the gospel is really saying. Yeah, it's the core important issue for sure. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for your time. And we just can't wait to have you out here in June. I'm so looking forward to it. Me too. I can't wait. Really excited about it. Hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. If you want to join us for the Renewed Conference with Elisa Childers on June 25th and 26th of this year, head over to athecreek.com and it'll have all the information there for how you can register. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Elisa's podcast. If you've not checked out the Elisa Childers podcast, it is really good. She has a lot of great conversations on there. And also don't forget to subscribe to the Devoted podcast if you haven't already, so that that way you know when a new episode is up and ready to go. Thanks for listening in today, guys. I'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in Westland, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.